Okay, Dr. Lynn, Wil Wilson, Dr. Lynn Hilton Wilson lives in Palo Alto, California with her husband, Dow Wilson. She's mother of seven children. This is my favorite part, all with red hair. Uh, during her undergraduate years at BYU in 82, she studied nursing in cello, and she received an MA in religious studies from Cardinal Stritch University, and there's a lot more there. You, you can check it on the, uh, on the website. With that, I'll turn the time over immediately to Lynn Wilson. I almost want to tell people in the middle, just move over to the side so you can see. Because I was sitting here in the front and it's hard to see him on the side. But I feel like um, a, year, a year ago, I guess it was two and a half, three years ago, when I was speaking at FAIR, I, um, I felt really strongly about the opportunity to... Um, okay, I've got it my clicker. Um, to take off my hat because I was on chemo and I was bald and it was so hot up here that I took off my hat and um, I got chemo curl back you know um, but the main question that I received when I talked about Christ's emancipation of women was well then what happened to the epistles you know what happened to Peter and Paul and so I've come back to try to answer that question a little bit later than I had hoped but I am um, here now to do it and the first thing I want to make sure that everyone um, does is take one minute and tell the person next to you where on the spectrum of misogyny do you place Peter and Paul tell the person next to you tell the person next to you Because I hope to change that perspective somewhat by the end of the, of the, of the talk. Because Christ planted the seeds of um, mutuality in marriage and of um, empowering women and children and the underling, I feel that not every seed was found on good soil, but I will argue that when it comes to Peter and Paul, this is a hot topic. And I claim, my thesis is, that even though we see a radical difference between um, the culture of the Greco-Roman world and Peter and and Christianity, the majority of the New Testament, including the epistles of Peter and Paul, follow Christ's teachings. And I feel really strongly about this. But to start out with, in case you forget all the little details, when you come across a topic perhaps that I don't address, whether it's in church history or in biblical studies, um, go through these questions and ask yourself, is, um, did the author really mean this? Was this a specific problem? Is this message consistent with scripture? What do other translations say? Did Joseph change this in his translation? What was the question that brought out the answer? And is this in harmony with restored gospel? So just in case you ever come across a questionable text in your future reading, make sure that as a good scholar, you don't throw the baby out with the bathwater and you look a little bit deeper. But the apostolic church, I am convinced is really given a bad rub on this. First of all, who wrote the apostle the gospels? The apostolic church. I mean, it's Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, or whoever their groups of schooling are. You know, that's a very debated talk. But the bottom line is, everything in the gospels came out of the apostolic church. 
The whole reason why we know the women in the Gospels, Mary Magdalene, Salome, Joanna, is because people from the Apostolic Church knew their names and wanted their story told. It's the Apostolic Church that has Luke writing next to every single male story, a female story, which, by the way, is more than we get in the church history lecture we just heard about. In fact, there are so many women mentioned in the New Testament, 180 references to women, which out which is even more than daughters of Zion, daughters of my kingdom, I noticed as I was listening. Um, but of these, of these um, 45 named women, um, we get over um, 30 of them are positive female disciples. This is fabulous. That are named, but we have many, many more that are unnamed. And half of those that are named are included in the epistles, not in the gospels. But I, I stand to say, who wrote the stories of Jesus? And who decided to include the Syrophoenician who says the dogs eat the crumbs? And who decided to include the woman touching the goat? And the, who decided to include the longest conversation that Jesus made is at the woman at the well? Who decided to include those? It's the apostolic church. So before we throw rocks at Peter and Paul, let's go back and look at B.H. Roberts' listing of the women. I mean, let's just give Peter and Paul a break. You know, they come from on the other side of the Hindu um, spectrum of how they feel about women coming from the Greco-Roman world. So I'm really glad I got to follow instead of precede the last lecture. That was just perfect. In addition to having their names mentioned in the epistles, um, we also have these wonderful titles that I think Paul included um, that we need to review. Mother, co-worker, witness, disciple, servant, um, church worker, sister, deaconess, wife, yoke fellow, um, and one prominent among the apostles. You know, these are names of people who have leadership positions, who are great women of faith, and yet we often remember the three or four um, statements and throw mud on their faces as, as if they were misogynists. Um, and perhaps there are some statements that we need to address. But as a general rule, I feel that the New Testament, and specifically the Apostolic Church, shows women in the light of great faith, of doing great works, and more than the men, following the examples of Christ as being the servant of all. I feel the, the women, stories of the women in the New Testament show them following the example of Christ who says repeatedly over and over, I have not come to be served but to serve. The greatest will be the least. I am the servant among you. And we see the women following that role. Um, so let's start with the epistles. And I like starting with the, gospel of, or the um, book of Acts written by Luke because he does such a great job of telling us about some of these house churches. There's no buildings just like upstate New York, burned over district and Kirtland and Missouri and Nauvoo. There's no ward buildings. We're meeting in people's homes. And these house churches are being run by women. And we have the names of the women, um, at least four that are mentioned in the epistles and acts. Uh, Mary, the mother of John Mark. So this is the woman who's in Jerusalem. Do you remember after Christ is, has been crucified and the apostles and the people are all gathered in her home? Um, 
when they come with the, when the women come with the news that he's that the tomb is empty and that angels have told them that he's been resurrected, they're staying at John Mark's mother's home, and then John Mark is the um, scribe of Peter, who then writes Peter's gospel, which is called the Book of Mark or the Gospel of Mark, because he's the scribe. But that's John Mark. That's the man that we're talking about. It's his mama who was wealthy and in Jerusalem. And then we have Lydia, the seller of purple. purple. Um, Chloe. Now, Chloe is an interesting one. I really find this fascinating because the whole book of 1 Corinthians is a big, long spanking. And, you know, there's everything he addresses is a spanking. You know, he's just telling him, you're doing this wrong, you're doing this wrong, you're doing this wrong. And then the second epistle is, oh, I'm so proud of you. Thank you, thank you, thank you. You know, yes. But this first epistle is hard. And, and, and what does he do? He says, okay, I've gotten all this information from Chloe. And she told me how bad you are. And I'm going to address every single point that she addresses here. So not only is she put on the spot, but she is put as a position of, I trust her judgment, I trust her observations, and I am going to hold her up so that you can um, respect my sources as well. I think that's pretty um, difficult to position to be in, but I still admire her because he speaks so highly of her repeatedly um, in his letter of First Corinthians. And then the last one is Priscilla and Aquila, um, our husband and wife tent makers, the ones that Paul is also a tent maker and gets to live with them when he's on his second mission in Corinth for 18 months as he makes tents there. Um, we get so many other great stories in the apostolic church of these women of faith. I'm sure you remember um, some of their names, if you don't remember their stories, Tabitha, Eunice, and um, Lois, and of course, um, Phoebe and Junia. But in addition to these beautiful named women, the 111 unnamed women have major roles in the church. And so just because the, um, the schools that are compiling or editing the Gospels to the time we know did, were unfamiliar with some of these people, their stories stand out as bright, shining women of faith and commitment, and I really admire them. Some of them in particular that we may not know well from the epistles of... Uh, Paul include um, these wonderful women of, the, of Philippi who labored with Paul. These are not women who are just um, um, on the sidelines serving the meals, but they are missionaries and they are working with him and they are making decisions. And um, we see this wonderful role of his wife as he calls her the yoke fellow um, in this gospel, I mean, in this epistle. And Galatians also refers to his wife in very positive terms. Um, and then the later epistles, we know that he refers to being a widower or a single man at that time when he's serving his mission, when we read about this in Timothy. But um, the, another one that I just love is um, Philip's four daughters. They're virgins who did prophesy. And remember, in the, God, in, the, in the book of Revelation, John the Beloved defines prophecy as one who has a testimony and can testify with the surety of Jesus Christ. And Joseph Smith chose to use that definition as well when he defended himself in Springville, um, Illinois, at a court of law when they said, are you a prophet? And he said, I am a prophet, as, according to the, Revela uh, the book of Revelation, as John the Beloved described it. Um, 
we also get this beautiful description um, now about the gifts of the Spirit, brothers and sisters, earnestly um, seek these gifts. And a lot of the times, part of the challenge in the New Testament, of course, is we were raised in a generation and in a, in a century and in a millennium where um, man was mankind. And now we have to be a little more careful and say humanity. But so much of the um, King James Version, when it says he or man, if you look at the Greek, it's actually multiple genders. You know, it's, it's, it's plural. And um, this is one of those situations in the gifts of the Spirit where, the Lord, where um, Paul is encouraging his saints of, of um, any age and any gender and any class. And he repeatedly delineates, um, you know, I don't care, black, white, male, female, free, slave, you know, all are alike unto God. And, and Paul, I think, does a, a good job of that. Okay, now I've defended him enough. You want to get to the meat. So here it is. There are some challenging verses. In fact, there's three major problems, and I think the three major problems stem over our definition of three major words. But I'm going to give um, you examples from this spouse subjugation, um, this dress and hair thing, which just made me smile the whole way through the uh, discussion of the sari, and then the issue of silence in church. But I really feel it's a... um, these three words that are used regularly can be summed down into three or four examples. So even though I'm only giving you four examples, there's probably eight tricky, maybe seven tricky issues in Paul There are and Peter. There are dozens of positive examples. But, of course, you only remember the sore thumb. Um, four times in the Gospels, I mean, four times in the Epistles, we get this family code of conduct. Three in Peter, in Paul, and one in Peter. And by Paul, I'm referring to the traditional Pauline Epistles, not to the ones that scholars now debate, you know, the pastorals, Timothy, Timothy, Titus. They don't think were written by Paul. But I'm just using the traditional verbiage to say, these words are used, and this family code of conduct is there. And this is where, if you're a young mom, you got to start teaching your kids the first scripture all my kids had to memorize, Ephesians 6, chapter 1. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. And um, this is where that's listed. And they have sections where masters are to report um, to their, and how slaves are to act, and how um, husbands are act, and wives are acting. But I want to focus in just on the part about the marriages in this code of conduct. And I'm going to focus on Peter's, even though Paul uses very similar wording and similar ideas, I think if we can just understand um, one of them, you can make the connection to the others. So I will focus on um, Peter's understanding here. So remember, there's no chapters, there's no verses, it's just a long letter. And the sentence before the section on marriage in Peter, he gives this beautiful example from Christ. And he says... um, Christ left an example that you should follow in his steps. He committed no sin, no deceit was found in his mouth. And when they hurled their insults at him, he did not retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. Now you have returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. Then the very next word is in like manner. And he goes on. Um, or depending on the translation, I'm sorry, obviously I wasn't quoting King James, Um, likewise in King James, and then he addresses the need for the wives 
um, to work together and cooperate in their, in their family relationships. And the real problem here, as you can read in some of these different translations, is that we are having a lot of people converting to Christianity, but their spouse has not. And since this is a, a general letter from Peter, it could be anywhere from Israel all the way to, you know, the church is going from India to, um, there's certain examples of Christianity um, that expanded far beyond Rome to the West by the time of the apostolic church ended. So he, he's saying, you know, if you have one spouse who's believing and the other spouse isn't, you guys still have to cooperate. You've got to work something out. Um, but we have in this section this, this word that is a little bit offensive to an American audience. Um, or perhaps to some Americans in an audience, or perhaps some Westerners in an audience. Um, I think we've sort of swung the pendulum so far on individual rights that um, we forget that sometimes submitting and cooperating and mutuality and mediating are, are good things. But because this is a little bit tricky, I want to specifically address this, this word. And we find that Peter uses it six times in this one letter. Um, and, and I'm going to read a couple of them because they're fabulous. Submit yourselves um, to every ordinance. Likewise, ye young, submit yourselves unto the elder. Yea, all ye be subject to one another, and be clothed with humility. For God resisteth the proud, and giveth grace to the humble. Um, if we continue looking beyond into the other epistles, Paul uses this Greek word over 40 times um, in the New Testament. So this is a very well-known word that King James often translates as... Subju- as um, um, submission, subject, subjugation, whatever. So it goes back to this old um, military r- word, which meant to arrange in a fashion under a commander or a leader. And um, the word was so common in the military that it began to have a non-military meeting. And in the non-military meeting, it was a voluntary attitude of giving in, cooperating, assuming responsibility, and carrying a burden. So if we take these two definitions, both the military and, and the other, we get a different translation of this. Um, this requirement was absolutely radical to give in, to cooperate, to work together. And Paul uses it both for the men and the women. This is completely unknown. This is written um, by a, a, a good Latter-day Saint, a, a non-Latter-day Saint, excellent biblical scholar on the topic. And he said, I, we just don't appreciate how radical this idea is. But the Christian husbands are supposed to love and submit to their wives rather than control them was absolutely um, f- ridiculous in the Greco-Roman world. And um, if you take the same word and you put it in the code of family behind um, Paul's work, it says, the wife stands behind her husband in all things when her husband stands behind Christ, if we're using the military definition. And if we put it in the non-military definition, a wife cooperates and assumes responsibility with her husband to carry their burden with Christ. Very different meaning, I think, to an American 21st century woman. Um, I don't feel that Paul or Peter were trying to say anything misogynist in saying, you guys, let's, let's submit to each other. I think they're saying, let's cooperate. Let's share this load and let's work together. 
I think it's very consistent with what we hear from our Latter-day Saint um, leaders. A husband and a wife's stewardships, equally sacred and important, do not involve any false ideas about dominion or subordination. And you guys, look at that year. That's 2006. That's before he marries Aunt Wendy. So you just think what he feels about that topic now. Uh, you know. Woo! Um, Elder Packer. In the church, there is a distinct line of authority. In the home, it is a partnership. With husband and wife equally yoked together, sharing in decisions, always working together. Elder Perry, in marriage, there is not a president and vice president. The couple work together on equal footing. And these are... um, duplicated by hundreds of more that you can find if you just open up your gospel app. But returning back to the epistle of Peter, um, another King James word that's a little bit tricky here is conversation. It really means um, your way of life or your behavior. And so he's saying the the non-believing spouse, whether it be husband or wife, once they see your way of life, you're living the gospel fully, they're going to respect you more. So if you just come to a cooperation, you'll find a little more harmony. He then gives, for two verses, the example of Abraham and Sarah. And he says, you are Sarah's daughters if you do what's right without giving way to fear. Now, this to me is extremely important because the average Greco-Roman had five divorces. The average Greco-Roman woman and man had four to five divorces each. In the Judaic world, it was less only because the women lived in total fear. Your husband could divorce you for burning your toast. The husband could divorce you for leaving a mess. If your voice is heard in the next room, your husband can divorce you and you don't get the bride price. I mean, the list is is over 150 pages long in the Mishnah of how he can divorce you. And it has to be three words, I divorce you, I divorce you, I divorce you, in the front of a witness, and it's done. And if he writes it on the hand of a slave, you get the slave. So, ladies, there's some good out of it, you know. And if he writes it on the horn of a cow, you get the cow. So, um, there was some good that came out of it. But um, the, the, the crazy thing is here, that the epistles are repeatedly saying... We do not want the women living in fear. And go back to the Gospels. So many times Christ says to the woman who's touching you after 12 years of bleeding and she's so scared because he's calling her out in public. He says, go in, do you remember? Go in peace. And so many of the other times he says, it's your faith that saved you. And it's your, and I want you to not fear. And and the apostles do the same thing. Here's other translations. Fear no intimidation. Let nothing terrify you. Or don't worry about this. Don't let your anxiety get hold of you here, women. Um, And then Peter ends with this marvelous promise, um, as well as the statement that a woman's body is is less strong than a man's, um, generally speaking. But he's not talking about the physiology. He doesn't care that... You know, he's just saying a weaker vessel, but he's not talking about physiology. What he wants to emphasize is, husbands, dwell with your spouse according to the gospel knowledge. This knowledge that you have, I want you to honor the wife because you will be heirs together in the grace of life. And we have multiple verses in the New Testament that refer to um, the 
um, celestial marriages, that they, the Holy Spirit of promise has sealed you together eternally, that you will be heirs together. And I feel like this is extremely um, critical in understanding our ideas on Peter and Paul and women, is that they have this doctrine. And then Peter ends with a warning. And he says, if you are not communicating well with your wife, you are not going to be able to communicate well with God. Your prayers are going to be hindered. And you guys, this is almost word for word against one of the rabbis from this era who used to say, um, talk not much with womankind. He said this of his own wife, let alone another man's wife. And another one says, um, he who speaks to women is taking his time away from studying the law. Hence, he will inherit Gehenna, which is hell. Um, so he, they feel very strongly that, uh, that speaking to women and spending time with women in the Judaic culture of the, of the Pharisaic school of thought, which is the ones who won, so that's all the records we have because they won um, after the end of the um, um, destruction of Jerusalem in 70 AD, um, their doctrines say it's better not to communicate with women and we had the exact opposite in Peter. He's saying, if you're not talking to your wife and you're not working things out, God's not going to hear you. You've got to have harmony in the home and in unity in the, in the couple. This is extremely radical doctrine. Finally, all of you, be like-minded, be sympathetic, love one another, be compassionate and humble. Do not repay evil and evil or insult with insult. On the contrary, repay evil with blessings because to this you were called so that you may inherit a blessing. Um, I hope that I have um, emphasized that the message of Peter repeatedly, even if we do find a couple of words that stick out like sore thumbs, is very harmonious. We are no longer living the Mosaic law of an eye for an eye. Instead, we want to return good for evil and kindness for cruelty and forgiveness for pain. That is how I feel about um, the misogynist statements in Peter, that he really did try to follow the Savior. He's immortal. He's, he's the one who falls into the water. He can't walk on it um, for very long um, without the Lord's hand. But like all of us, let's not throw stones. Now, of course, we come to the harder ones. And I may not be so um, able to convince you on this one or on these. <laughs> but I love Paul. I tried to name three boys Paul and my husband wouldn't let me because there's six Pauls already in his family. But um, let's first of all remember that the epistles are one-sided. We do not know the whole story. You know, We know that the um, letter to the Corinthians is one much, much later, because he refers in this first this letter that we have to other letters that I've already been writing you on the subject. So let's just remember there's ongoing problems. And the reason why there's ongoing problems is because Corinth is a double port city. When the Greeks cut through that four-kilometer space of solid rock in order to make a canal so that the boats wouldn't have to go around the, the um, treacherous sailing waters in the winter that they could just cut through, it became a double port city. And like most port cities, it became doubly promiscuous. And the word Corinthianized means to live a desolate light. If you are a Corinthian man, you're a whoremonger. If you're a Corinthian girl, you're a prostitute. If you Corinthianize, you have sex, illegitimately. And in the capital, uh, in the center of Corinth is this beautiful chap uh, uh, temple to Zeus, I mean, um, 
who, Venus, Venus. Um, and th- they employed 1,000 women prostitutes to act as priestesses to um, the, um, the goddess there. So promiscuity is a real problem here. And um, all of Paul's letters on marriage are, are trying to, and sexuality, are trying to combat this culture. And, you know, he was there for 18 months during his second mission. He knows these people well. He addresses them by name. And um, he talks about two things that are a little bit difficult in this letter for us. One is um, the dress of the women, and the other is the silence in the churches. So I want to address those in this context. Um, A man at this time, uh, okay, we have an artist in the room, and I hope the rest of you artists will will understand this. Men at that time went out bareheaded. Um, Whoever does the temple movies can tell them this too. Um, (laughs) Men went out bareheaded while the woman went out with her head covering. And it wasn't just her head. It's the whole body. It's head to toe. We have lots and lots of examples to you know, hundreds of examples to explain that women went out that way. In the Pharisaic Jewish tradition, the women wore these headbands. This is a bad picture, but I couldn't find one. I didn't know how to do... I should have given it to one of my kids to shop... What do they do? Photoshop in all the things on their face. But um, they covered their whole countenance. You know, they could not be identified. Their children could only identify them by their hands. Um, But in the Greco-Roman world, which is the majority of the Christians in the... Um, in Corinth, it's a fashion. And you look at the coins and you see these emperor's wives with these lovely things for strolling down their, um, across their heads and down, and it's a, it's a fashion statement. Um, you see it on carved tombs. And it's nothing um, of d- a demeaning or subjugation. It's a beautiful thing that they would wear. If you look at the um, other neighboring traditions, if you look at the Assyrian Empire, the Middle Assyrian Empire, it was a sign, it was a status symbol, actually, because the women who had it were um, um, the real wives. And if you were a concubine or a mistress, you didn't get to wear the veil. The veil set you apart as the Brahmin, as it were. You know, so it, it gave you status and, and culture there. Um, it was also used in religious cults. Um, this, is, this is one a cult, interesting, that came up from Egypt, so it was illegal. There's only 10 religions that were allowed in the Greco-Roman world in the late Second Temple period of, of the New Testament. And of those 10, um, one of them was Judaism. But ISIS was not. Isis came up from Egypt, and it was a cult where the women acted as a priestess, and they covered their heads when they came to the altar. And it was called Isis, and unfortunately. <laughs> yeah. But some of our favorite words are changed nowadays, so, you know. Um, but it, it meant something very different to all these Christian converts. So the idea that Paul wants to address um, veils and women veiling during prayer especially during prayers that have to do with special ordinances where they're also prophesying or testifying of Christ, was very difficult because it's, the veil has a different meaning with all these different cultures. And so Paul does not talk about subjugation. He is not talking about fashion. He is talking about a Christian veil. And instead of using the, re- reiterating the fashion or the, um, excuse me, the, the, um, restriction, he chooses to talk about the theology. And he wants to say that a Christian veil will empower the women. 
He starts out in chapter 11, verse 2, to give you a little context by saying, keep the ordinances that I have delivered unto you because I received them of the Lord, which also I delivered to you. Now, this word is not translated as ordinances in any other modern English translation. And the reason why not is because it is a very broad definition. It means teachings. It means doctrines. It means something to hand over. So I wanted to look specifically at how Paul used this word. I can go to my Greek lexicon and I can read a whole string of words as to what this means. But how does Paul use this word? And in the book of Corinthians, he uses it specifically for those things that he received from Christ that he hands over. And he he repeatedly um, talks about things that are ordinances in the light of baptism and sacrament and than this prayer circle that he doesn't refer to by the name of prayer circle. He just refers to it as this sacred time where women are joining with the men and they veil their faces and they pray together and they prophesy. Um, Joseph Smith did teach that Paul knew all the ordinances and blessings that were in the church. This is from one of his Nauvoo sermons. Um, Every time Paul uses this next phrase in the in the epistle of Corinthians, to the Corinthians, he's, when he says, but I would have you know, it's just like when you tell your children, you did a nice job cleaning your bedroom, but, you know, so this is the same thing, you know, thank you for keeping the ordinances, but, you know, you, you know something is a problem here, and every time he uses it, he gives them another spanking, um, and he refers to this word, Kafal. And before I go into the text, I want to give you the Greek definition so that you don't fall into the trap and we can go a little bit faster um, by keeping your mind on top of this. Kafal is used regularly in Paul and it, he uses it for your head or your source. Interestingly, in, in, in English, we have the headwaters of the Nile and the head where your cerebellum is intact. And you do the same thing um, in Greek and in Hebrew and, and they're both the origin and the source, as well as this physical thing up here. And he, Paul uses a different word when he wants to talk about a chief or a ruler. Um, in verse 3, Paul says that there's this order and that God is the head of Christ, which is the head of man, which is the head of woman. And it is often understood by this, that they are the ruler or the chief of. But I would like to suggest that that is not how Paul is using the word, that the context of this section, and by the context of his letter, there's enough evidence to say, Paul is saying, he's, he's taking us back to Eden. He gives four or five examples from Eden as he's talking about this ordinance of covering your heads. For some reason, he wants to get them back to the Garden of Eden as he tells this story. And the first thing he says is, every man praying and prophesying with his head covered dishonoreth his head. So if you use this literally, um, he's dishonoring um, his head who is God because God says in Genesis that he's going to create man and woman after his image, after the image of God created he them, male and female, as you, as you know. Um, so if the man is covering his face, he is dishonoring he who he is created after, which is um, our Savior, or Jehovah. But then Paul goes on to verse 5 that says, it's different for women. Every woman who prayeth and prophesieth, and the reason why I stopped the slide right there is because I want you to remember what he just said. What did he say? Are women supposed to pray? Are women supposed to be prophesying? 
Now, you'll need to remember this verse when we get to the hard one when he says silence in church, okay? Remember this one. This is one of those 20 that I said. He says women can talk and preach and prophesy versus the one that says he can't. So um, then he says, I want you to be doing this. I want you to, to speak forth under inspiration or with testimony. I want you to be doing this, and every woman that prayeth or prophesieth um, dis- dishonoreth her head. So why is it different? Why is our source different? Well, it's different, according to Paul's theology, because Adam, or the male, is representing the glory of God. And the female is representing the glory of man. And the glory of man, I think, is easier understood by Latter-day Saints when we go back to Moses 139. This is my work and my glory to bring to pass the immortality and eternal life of man. So the next generation, the woman then becomes a co-creator with God and she then becomes the source of the next generation. And the next generation is God's glory, but it's also she is the source of it, so she becomes the glory of man. So in order to humbly stand before God, she needs to have her head covered. Another reason why woman is the glory of man is because she is the mother of our Savior. Um, Another translation of this then would be that woman representing humanity's or mankind's glory veils humbly before God. And then he goes on to say there's another reason why she has to wear the veil. She has to wear the veil because it gives power on her head and because of the angels. Now, this word power is interesting because it's more accurately translated in the NIV as authority. In order to function in the ordinances with men, she needs authority to be there. And so she needs to have her head covered as a symbol of her authority. So the veil, Paul says, is not the Judaic or the ancient ideas It is one that should empower us. It gives us humility before God that we can stand before our Savior. We can stand before him in his presence, and we have authority to do such. And then he goes back to the Garden of Eden again, and he says the angels are the ones who the woman needs to have this sign of authority to pass by. The angels, of course, were at this creative time And it is the angels then who have this form of ministering to these women when they are acting in the ordinances. Joseph Smith, out of this whole chapter, changed one word, and that was the word of the veil. Instead of saying a woman has it by power on his head, he said he wants them to be covered. He has this covering on their head because of the angels. And I think it's significant, not that Joseph understood it in 1831 when he's doing this, or 1832, I think it's significant that the word covering is the word atone in Hebrew, the kafar, um, that we have to have the atonement on us from the time of Eve in order to have authority and power to return, to enter into his presence, to partake again of the tree of life, and to enter into his presence without our sins. Um, And then he comes to this very empowering grand finale. Think of fireworks going off in your mind. Neither is the man without the woman, neither the woman without the man in the Lord. And this was quoted earlier today as a positive source from Paul. 
um, I feel his doctrine is clearly um, consistent with the idea of checks and balances, that the husband and wife have to check in with each other only as they are in line with God. And um, then he ends with, for as the woman is of the man, even so is the man also of the woman, but all things of God. Remember the word but is also and in, in, in the ancient world. It's just a, a, they don't have commas and periods, so you put but or and in. So the f- Eve is from the rib, and then the next generation, the man is from the woman. There is complete interdependency between the genders in Paul's grand finale, in Peter's grand finale. Um, and this idea, I feel, is absolutely empowering. And whether or not um, we understand it as we veil to pray, um, I feel that the theology that Paul set out was meant to give women equal status as they represent humanity and as their womb becomes the veil. A couple of chapters later, you'd think these verses never existed. But in between these two chapters, we get the gifts of the Spirit, where he says, women, I don't want you just prophesying and praying. I want you having visions. I want you healing. I want you, I want you having a powerful impact on the Christianity. And, he, and, he, and it's for both genders. And Joseph Smith um, looks at this area and changes it to they when it says the gifts of the Spirit are to be one gender. Joseph changes it to plural. Um, and in this one letter, five times, Paul refers to women preaching and worshiping in the church. If you look at all of the Pauline um, epistles as well as Acts, you have 12 times where he specifically says women are to speak out and preach in church. Um, however, we come to this troubling passage. Um, this is so interesting. Verse 31, I don't want I want everybody taking their turns, but I do want everybody, I want all to prophesy. Just do it one by one. I want everyone to be able to learn. I don't want, you know, confusion here. Let's, let's all take turns. Um, and then he says, and the spirits of the prophets are subject to the prophets. For God is not the author of confusion, but of peace, as in all churches of the saints. So you get the idea that there's something going on with irreverence. You get the idea he's been to my Palo Alto first ward. Um, and then comes the difficult verses. Let your women keep silent in the churches, for it's not permitted unto them to speak, but they are commanded to be under obedience. Um, for also it saith in the law. And this, if they learn anything... Go home and ask their husbands. Um, You know, it's a very different message that he's given there. But if you look at the verse, to be silent, in other Greek, the Greek can be translated, be reverent, don't chatter. And instead of go home and submit to your husband, I want you to be supportive. So the translation really makes a huge difference here. Silence is one of those three things. Subjugation, head, and silence. And it really has an enormous um, theological dependent on the translator as to how we're looking at this. That's one way of looking at it. Joseph Smith said, that's not the issue at all. They just said the word wrong. It's not speak at all. 
It's who has to rule in third. The whole thing's about authority, which is very consistent, by the way, with the entire book of, I mean, the fi- entire letter of First Corinthians. The majority of it deals with authority. Um, but the thing that I like on this, if you take out those two verses, the textual flow shows that those two verses are added later. And when you go back and you look at the, you know, there's 2,500 documents that all are 1 Corinthians in the first 600 years of Christianity. Okay, we have a lot of early Greek texts on this matter. But when you go back to the earliest ones in Ephesus, where John the Beloved is living, the earliest documents of 1 Corinthians do not contain these two verses. They are added only in the dispensation or the generation after the apostles are died. So I feel the way I handle this verse is I just throw it out the window. <laughs> it, it fits very well with the Judaizers, which Paul is constantly saying the Judaizers are coming in and, and messing things up. Paul's constantly talking about false teachers, even as early as Second Thessalonians, which is the second oldest document we have in the New Testament. Um, and the Gnostics are saying the same thing. So he is battling this over and over. And I've got... Um, just a couple more minutes because I want to save time for questions. So I want to just really quickly jump on this one because it's very similar in First Timothy, which I already said was a debated text, uh, whether or not Paul wrote it. But he refers to um, replacing worldliness um, and self-promotion with service. And he wants the women um, in King James to be shamefacedness. But in other translations, I want you to be modest and discreet or be a little bit quieter. We're not used to hearing women's voices in churches. Could you please just tone it down a bit? And that, of course, is what my husband should quote to me all the time, but he doesn't, luckily. And then he says something wonderful. He says, let the women learn. Now, this is radically different. There are 613 commandments in the Torah for man. There are six for women. And it was against the law to teach the woman the Torah. There are statements that say from the time of the New Testament, he who teaches his daughter the law, the same teacheth her lechery. The women were, it was, it was illegal in a, in a Pharisaic home to teach the women the law. And here he's saying, we want the women to learn. So now let's keep going. <laughs> Listening quietly. With due submission, what's submission mean? Cooperation, respect. Let's, let's fall in line here. You're a student. Let's not be the know-it-all. Um, we want you to be respectful and cooperate here. Um, and then the tricky one. I do not allow women to teach or exercise authority over a man, but to remain quiet. Um, so I can't answer all the questions, but some of them... Did the author really mean this? And was this a specific problem? And how does it work in the restoration? Um, I feel that the answer, though, is in verse 15 to this. Adam was not deceived, but the woman being deceived. And he goes on and says in uh, most translations that, it's, that the, way, the way that we're saved is if we can just have children. Women can be saved if they just bear children. But... Joseph changes it, not that the women can be saved, but the husband and the wife can be saved, which is exactly what Elder Ballard said when he said, just as a husband and wife um, are needed to create a child, so it is in the priesthood, in the highest forms, we have to have a husband and wife working together to hold the priesthood in its fullest. Um, General Conference 2010 or something. This is the same idea, I feel, that Joseph changed. But my favorite idea comes from this translation, Even though she, 
woman will be saved not from child labor, not from labor and delivery. She will be saved through the birth of the child if they continue in love, faith, holiness, and good judgment. We are not saved by childbearing. We are saved through Jesus Christ. And the apostolic church should be consistent with the restored church in saying that we are teaching what Christ taught. We don't need to go back to Joseph Smith. It wasn't Joseph's church. It wasn't Brigham's church. It's not President Nelson's church. We belong to the church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. And it wasn't Peter's church. It wasn't Paul's church. And they were doing their best to follow the Savior. And I pray we can do the same. In the name of our Savior, amen. time. Do you want me to not do any questions? You know, we're going to bypass questions. If you want to catch her later, you can, or you can send an email and we'll certainly send anything on. We want to do something really special at this point. Uh, Before we do that, before we do the special thing as he's coming up, uh, I want to remind you we really need your help doing this feedback so we know how you think about our speakers and also how you found out about us and that kind of stuff. So make sure you go to fairmormon.org forward slash feedback. And... Thank you, because we appreciate you so much. Thank you. <laughs> and such. Thank you. Get a certificate for a book in there. <laughs> so you can, oh, wonderful. So you can, you can do that. Uh, now, I don't want to embarrass her too much, but Lynn and her husband are. Don't say anything. Don't say, don't anything? say anything. Okay. Don't say anything. I won't say anything. <laughs> well, before we do that, let's bring up Kirk McElby from Book Mormon Central. And I think he's got a cast of thousands that's been following. So. <laughs> Thank you. Okay, as you were getting out your, web, your phones to do other good things with the church, make sure you open up your phones and you get Book of Mormon Central on. And this is our man right here. (laughs) Dr. Lynn Hilton Wilson is one of the most remarkable women in the contemporary church. And we thought it would be appropriate to honor her, not just because she's a biblical scholar, not just because she's a terrific uh, wife and mother, but because she's the co-founder of Book of Mormon Central, which is now going around the world doing marvelous things to help build the kingdom of God upon the earth. And we wondered how we could possibly do that. And we thought, maybe if we could take an incident in church history that has been undervalued and underappreciated and commission a new piece of original art so we can forever memorialize this particular incident from now on, that might be an appropriate way to honor Lynn Wilson. Thank you. <laughs> so we, as Book of Mormon Central, have commissioned uh, Bob Pack to create an image that will stand for all time. It's actually painted on copper. So this will be still intact 500 years from now. And this is of Mary Whitmer, the first witness to the gold plates, being shown the gold plates by the angel Moroni. Okay, can we roll the video, please?
we're depicting a miraculous event where Mary Whitmer having a difficult time. It was wonderful to be able to highlight a woman in the background supporting the church and the restoration in a way that is was not acknowledged or understood. But the Lord knew, and Moroni was sent to give her an opportunity to see the plates. How marvelous that a woman in the church, slaving away, working in the kitchen, uh, helping the translation happening in the Peter Whitmer farmhouse, to be the one chosen, the only woman chosen to see the gold plates or to witness them. I think it's marvelous. Over the years, I have uh, developed an ability to paint on copper, and I only use oil paint and copper. This type of material adds a luminosity that is hard to match, and um, I'm going to try to make the plates look very metallic, look like they are real gold. I spend days and days uh, working over the copper with pencil. Um, I try to get the contour of the hands and the faces down to a very, very fine level of detail. When I was asked to do this um, commission showing Mary Whitmer witnessing the gold plates at the hand of Angel Moroni, um, I was handicapped. I had never been to the site. So I was given the opportunity to finally go. So I jumped on an airplane. I was greeted immediately by a wonderful senior couple missionaries. So I immediately started to pick their brains about what do they feel like happened. I immediately had a, a very devoted tour guide that took me all around the site and, and we talked at length about the circumstances of what Mary Whitmer was experiencing at the time that she was granted this uh, wonderful experience. The spirit I felt there uh, was wonderful and I really got a sense of what the atmosphere and the feel of that morning might have been. Another aha moment was <clears throat> when I found the models for this um, um, painting. They're Russian uh, immigrants where the, the mother who's playing um, Mary had basically experienced the same situation when living in St. Petersburg, Russia and having temple goers going to Helsinki or Stockholm temples using their home almost exclusively as the way, way house or way place as they were either um, flying or uh, boating or taking a ship down to the temple. And she's experienced the very same feeling of being overwhelmed with crowds of people in their home. And she could totally identify with Mary being overworked at the time of the translation of the gold plates into the Book of Mormon by Oliver and Joseph. Uh, and the Lord blessed her with the ability to be a witness to the gold plates. The only woman known to have seen them at the time of the restoration. And this had never been painted, to my knowledge. For Book of Mormon Central or, um, you know, their their activities to, to suggest this to me it was a great blessing. This is a great opportunity for me. Uh, 
We have in the audience today the artist, Bob Pack. Would you please stand to be recognized? We also have in the audience the other co-founder of uh, Bookmore Central, Jack Welch. And uh, Jack and Lynn, you both now have a Bob Pack painting. Oh, thank you. So if you wouldn't mind, just say a few words. I can say anything. I am so moved. But it's easy to remember the three first witnesses. Mary the Virgin, Mary Magdalene, and Mary Whitmer. Yeah. Our three first witnesses of the Savior. We're all women. 